Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. As people of Jesus, we're volunteers. We're not compelled to follow Christ. We get to choose to follow Christ. And I love that. I love the idea that, hey, we volunteered. God does not force anyone to follow Him. He gives man, He gives all of us free will, freedom to choose to follow Christ. And if you do choose to follow Him, you are following your God and Savior who came to earth a man, though He was still fully God, so He could empathize with us, so He could know what we go through. He is our High Priest and knows our pain and our joy. We are covering the beginning of Hebrews chapter 5 today, but we are also stopping in several other places as we study Melchizedek. Who was he and what does he mean to us? So hold on, here we go. Here's Robert Furrow. Here in chapter 5, we are introduced for the first time in the book of Hebrews to someone by the name of Melchizedek. He is a mysterious person that we find first of all in the Old Testament and then here in the New. And he's an important person because Jesus was of the tribe of Judah and Jesus is a high priest. If you are a high priest, you would have to be from the line of Levi. And God took this seriously. You remember that King Uzziah was a good king. When you read the reign of Uzziah, he does good things. But at a certain point, he decided that he wanted to come and give a sacrifice, that he wanted to play the priest. And God gave him leprosy. Shortly after that, Uzziah died. And you remember, Isaiah starts off, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Never do you find any of the, the priests of Israel being kings and priests. They were always separate. There were kings and there were priests. But Jesus is a king and a priest. He is the king of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and he is the prince of peace. And he is a high priest forever. That's what we get in chapter five. Then we get it again in chapter six, and then we get all the details about Melchizedek in chapter seven. So I thought what we should do before we get into these three chapters is take time to look at all of the passages that deal with Melchizedek, ask the questions about him, and kind of determine where we land. And there are different people, different theologians, different teachers that land in all kinds of different places when it comes to Melchizedek. The, the options are these, that Melchizedek was a real living person who was a priest in Jerusalem, which Jerusalem is the city of peace. He was called the king of peace. So they believe he was a very real person. There is some evidence that in Canaan, they hundreds of years before Israel ever came in and took the, the nation of Canaan, that they served one God. And Melchizedek is a priest of the God Most High, the same God that Abraham serves. And so there is some evidence that that might have been the case, although we're never told that. We're never told that Melchizedek was a, a real person. You could, I guess you could assume it, I'm not quite sure that you can in the way that he shows up, that you could assume that he's just a, was a regular person. He was a, he was a priest. He was, he was, you know, Melchizedek, and he was a high priest. The second is that he is a type of Christ, that he is a type of Jesus, that he was a real living person, and that he was a type of Christ, 
and that Jesus took his priesthood, that he had a priesthood, the priesthood according to Melchizedek, and that Jesus kind of went around what is called the Aaronic priesthood, not ironic, the Aaronic priesthood, and became a priest according to Melchizedek. The third position is that Melchizedek is Jesus, that it is a Christophany. It is a Christ appearance in the Old Testament. And there are several times that you find Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. This is part of what I would call the complexity of God. You find that in the Old Testament, there are two powers at times that are serving and ruling. We, we talk about the Trinity and you even find the Trinity in the Old Testament. There are passages that actually talk about the three. You talk about the Spirit, the Son, and the Father, all of them together. So this is part of the complexity of God. And I came into this study believing, this is my position as I started the study, believing that Melchizedek is, uh, is Jesus, that Jesus is a Christophany. And then I'm open, right? I always tell you guys we're on a truth quest. We want to know what the truth is, not an I'm right quest. So we always want to search and study things to find out what the truth is. And so I studied it and I'll let you know at the end where I'm at. All right. So I won't tell you right now, but I'll let you know at the end. So we want to start in Genesis 14, verse 18. And just for upstairs, if they want to go ahead and get things ready, we're going to then go to Psalms 110. I'm going to quote John 8, 56. And then we'll be in Hebrews 7, 1 through, it says 1 through 21. I'm not sure it's the whole thing. Um, then we'll cover all of Hebrews 5. Then I've got two more verses. Then we'll be in 1 Peter 2, 9. These are all conclusion passages. And then we're going to be in Romans 12, 1 and 2. All right. So hopefully you guys got that. Did you get, um, did you get Genesis 14, 18 through uh, 20 loaded? Hopefully. All right. That's where we are. If you guys, if it's not up there, you guys look it up. All right. So Genesis 14, this is the introduction of Melchizedek. And it happens when Melchizedek, when Abraham, then Abram, before his name change, takes some of his men and he goes and he rescues his nephew Lot. There's been four kings that attacked five kings and that took uh, plunder and people from the city of Sodom. So there was these two coalitions. They battled together. The four kings won and they took Lot and other people and loot from the city of Sodom. Abraham got his 300 and something men together and he went, divided his forces and by night attacked them and liberated Lot and other hostages and took the loot that they had taken from Sodom back himself. So as he's coming back to Jerusalem, he goes through a certain valley and the king of Sodom shows up. And the king of Sodom is going to say, you go ahead and keep the stuff. Just uh, give, me, give me the pee. Let me have the people back. But you can go ahead and keep the stuff. And Abraham's going to say, I'm not going to keep a thing from you because I don't want you saying that you made Abraham rich. So that's the event. But in the middle of the Sodom event, right when the king of Sodom is there talking to him and, and before he gives everything back, we get this account of Melchizedek. And it's the first time he comes on the scene. It, it says in verse 18 of Genesis 14, then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Melchizedek in Hebrew is translated king of righteousness. King of Salem is king of peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Brought out bread and wine. So, so right away, we're reminded of Jesus. You can't read this account and not be reminded of Jesus. Jesus is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He's the prince of peace. And he gave us communion with bread and wine. 
So with him coming out with these, it seems like he's, he's already, you know, projecting forward to the Messiah. We know, even by reading this, that at least they're connected, right? From the very beginning. It says then that he was a, a priest of God Most High. So this is during the days of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know God as Yahweh. God would reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush. So here you have a reference to Yahweh as God Most High. And then we learn that it's the same one as Abram because Melchizedek, who is a priest of the God Most High, and he blessed, verse 19, and he blessed him, meaning Abram, and said, blessed be Abram of God Most High. Now we know that Melchizedek is not a priest of another God, but he's a priest of Yahweh, known then as God Most High. And Abraham is from God Most High as well. And then it says, it goes on to say, possessor of heaven and earth. So now we're getting an idea of who we're talking about. We're talking about the creator. We're talking about the one to whom everything belongs. All of the heavens, all of the earth belong to God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So God was with Abraham and he gave him a tithe of all. Now, the way that that's written in Hebrew you don't really know whether Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe or whether Melchizedek gave Abraham a tithe. It just simply says, and he gave him a tithe of all. And you kind of read it and go, even in the Hebrew, wow, we don't know which one it is. Later on in the New Testament, we learn that it was Abraham that gave Melchizedek a tithe. Now, this is important because in Abraham, he stands there representing all of Israel. Everything Israel will become will come from Abraham. There is no chosen people at this point. All the chosen people are in this one man. All the 12 tribes of Israel are in Abraham. The Levites are in Abraham. And the Levites are going to receive tithes from the rest of the people in Israel. And now Abraham, that has Levi in him, gives tithes to Melchizedek, this priest. And so it's talking about the significance of Melchizedek. If I'm reading what we're going to study in a couple of, of weeks in Hebrews chapter 7 correctly, I'm reading that Melchizedek is a more important figure than Abraham. That's pretty hard to grasp because we learn of Abraham that in him, one of his seed, one of his descendants is going to bless all nations so that he is superior somehow to Abraham is pretty important. And if you're going to say that Melchizedek is just a person, and now I'm going to start giving away the position that I hold, right? If you're going to say Melchizedek is just a person, then you've got to, well, I don't know that you've got to, but it certainly brings up the question as to why he is superior. If he's just a priest in Jerusalem of the Most High God, then why is he superior to Abraham, who was chosen by God to be the father of many descendants down the way, but the father of the Messiah. Okay? So let's go to the second passage. And the second passage is in Psalms 110. And I want to read this entire psalm to you. Or I want to read 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4 to you. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I think I'm right in saying that it is the most quoted passage, or Old Testament passage, in all of the New Testament. I know it's the most quoted psalm. It's quoted a lot. And you'll, you'll, you'll know it right away. Verse 1, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Hebrews chapter 1. He has superiority of Jesus over angels, right? Verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, uh, which is the city of Jerusalem, rule in the midst of your enemies. I love verse 3, and this is why I wanted to read this verse just so I could talk about this section. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. As people of Jesus, we're volunteers. We're not compelled to follow Christ. We get to choose to follow Christ. And I love that. I love the idea that, hey, we volunteered. It's like, it's like the army today, right? It, whatever, whatever branch, you volunteered today. Nobody's drafted. We weren't drafted into the kingdom of God. We volunteered. It says, in the beauty, beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. This is a messianic passage, no doubt. Jesus died in his early 30s. The dew of his youth had not fallen away. And all of us who are older look back and go, yes, I had the dew of my youth at one time. And I no longer do anymore. But Jesus never didn't have the dew of his youth because he died young. The Lord has sworn, and here we are, we finally get to Melchizedek, all right? The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, here we have the Old Testament precedent for the Messiah being a priest by the order of Melchizedek. This is not just something that the writer of Hebrews made up. This reveals to us how we are supposed to make theology. We, we want to have evidence and proof to be able to back up what we say. And so, for example, the Mormon church says that all of their elders are priests of Melchizedek. And they have a Melchizedek priestly order that takes place. But they also believe that they are all priests according to Aaron. And they have people who were of, in the Book of Mormon, there are people who are from the tribe of Joseph who are giving sacrifices because they are priests of Aaron and priests of Melchizedek. That's all just fabricated. That's an example of what you don't want to do. You don't want to just come out of thin air and come up with something. You want to be able to, to go back and have a foundation for what you believe. And this is what you find throughout the entire gospel. It's what you find throughout the entire New Testament is that the New Testament is built on Old Testament principles. <clears throat> There's nothing that is just fabricated. There's nothing that we don't have the justification to go back to the Old Testament and see clearly. And so the Mormons teach in a, a Melchizedek, and, and the reason that they do that, and cults do this a lot, and that, yeah, more, the Church of Latter-day Saints, are, it's a cult. They do it a lot on something that has a mystery to it, on something that's hard to understand. They like to glob onto that because they have a lot of freedom to be able to, to move and to make it say things that they want it to be able to say. And so they do it a lot. They've done it with Melchizedek. And, and they're not the only cult that you find that grabs onto Melchizedek because we look at it and we go, well, I don't know quite sure what's here. There's some things that are very clear. There's some things that are not so clear. So they grab onto it. Now, in John 8, 56, Jesus said something. It was actually a reference to him being God. People will tell me that Jesus never claimed to be God, but they actually haven't studied the things Jesus said because Jesus claimed to be God on more than one occasion. And at one point he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. This is John 8, 56. So the question is, when did Abraham rejoice to see the day of Jesus? 
And they said to him, he said it to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders said, well, you're not even 50 years old yet, and you say that you saw, that, that Abraham saw your day and rejoiced. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. The name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. This is one of the seven I am statements in the book of John. And the number seven is the number of completeness. So Jesus makes seven I am statements in the book. Before Abraham was, I am. So when did Abraham rejoice to see his day? Some say it was when God saved him. The Bible says that he told, that God told Abraham, your wife Sarah is going to have a child. And he said, eh, she's a little old. I have another son, Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. And God says, no, but Sarah is going to have a son. And from her seed, from that son's seed, is going to come one who will bless all nations. That's a reference to the Messiah. Okay. So some say, well, that was when Abraham rejoiced to see his day and saw it, when he learned about the Messiah coming from his lines. You also have Abraham at the tent of his door, and the Lord comes to him with two angels, and he gets a meal for them, and he says, in a year from now, your wife Sarah's going to have a baby. And Sarah's in the tent, remember that account? And Sarah laughs, and the angel says, why did Sarah laugh? Or, or the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah from inside the tent says, I didn't laugh. It's like she's listening in. And she laughs. And the, well, I didn't laugh. You remember what Isaac's name is, means in, in Hebrew? Laughter. Because she was barren all those years. And suddenly here she is in her old age and she has a baby. And we still laugh with her to this day. So that's another suggestion that he rejoiced to see his day. And then he went out and haggled with the Lord. Do you remember that? He haggled over, God says, I'm going to destroy. There's been an evil cry from Sodom and Gomorrah out to me, and I'm going to go see if it's true. And Abraham says, what if there's 50 righteous men there? Are you going to destroy it? He says, no, I won't destroy it. There's 50 righteous men. Then they haggle, and they get down to 10, I think. And there's not 10 righteous men that are there. So, and then there's Melchizedek. So those are the options that you have for what Jesus meant when he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it. And it's possible it was Melchizedek that he rejoiced when he came back with this loot and was blessed by him and was given bread and wine by him. Now, there are two historians that talk about Melchizedek, two Jewish historians that talk about Melchizedek. I'm not going to say there's not any other historians who do it because I, I didn't look. I didn't even start to look up as to whether or not any other Roman historians talked about Melchizedek or any other. But there are two Jewish historians who talk about Melchizedek. One of them is Philo. Both of these are first century historians meaning zero to, to 99, okay? Philo wrote of Melchizedek, and this is interesting, that he was the logos of God. The word logos means word. We get logo from it. That's interesting because John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Philo was not a Christian. Philo was Jewish. And he says that Melchizedek was the word of God. If Philo isn't, it isn't inspired. It's, it's, it's history. It's not inspired writing, but it's interesting. You can't prove it to say Melchizedek is Jesus, but it's interesting that there was this Jewish thought way back in the first century that Melchizedek was the Logos. Josephus said that he was a Canaanite chief. So Josephus, who is the, the most prolific uh, author or, or historian during the first century, he was with Titus when he marched on Jerusalem and he recorded all the things that happened during that event. And he says that he was a Canaanite chieftain, which is that he was a real person 
and he was a, a chieftain, meaning he was in charge, and he was a priest. So that's where you get back, uh, really the only evidence that he was a real person. I don't know that the only evidence, I guess you could just assume it from the passage we already read in the book of um, Genesis. And then there are early rabbinical writings about Melchizedek. And there are a lot of them. In the book of 2nd Enoch, the book of Enoch is quoted in Jude, which is in itself interesting. When you read it, you realize it's not scripture, but it is quoted in Jude. And then you have the book of 2nd Enoch, which gives you the birth account of Melchizedek. But immediately you read it and go, it's not true. Immediately, you know, this isn't scripture. So the account goes that, that Melchizedek's mom got pregnant, but without her husband around. And that her husband came and found her dead. Then they left for a few days and they came back to bury her. And there was a, a, a boy, not a baby, a boy in a priestly garment sitting on the edge of his dead mother's bed. And that that was Melchizedek and he already had the priest robes on. So you read that and you go, no, <laughs> no, it's just, it's just too weird. Weird in, weird in every way. And that's what you get with a lot of the writings from those times that from, from those particular times, they'll just have things that don't make sense to them in them at all. And so um, the early writings that you have from most of the, the rabbinical writings have Melchizedek as Shem. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so the Jews came from Shem. So did the Arab peoples, by the way, came from Shem. And so they believe that Melchizedek is Shem. That was by far the, the most prolific teaching during the time that Hebrews is written. And I wanted to show you all of that to show you that the Hebrews that were reading the book, the book of Hebrews would know all of this about Melchizedek and more. They would, have, they would have heard about Melchizedek from the time that they were small. This wouldn't be anything new to them. To us, we read it and it's so mysterious. To them, it wasn't mysterious. They, they learned about it all of the time. This is their Old Testament. Melchizedek is in it. All right? So let's take a look at a New Testament passage, and that's Hebrews 7. And I wanted to talk about Melchizedek. He's first introduced in Hebrews 5. I wanted to talk about him before we get there, but Hebrews 7 gives us a lot of clarity. All right? So verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, so far he's just quoting from what we learned in Genesis, okay, king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appropriated a tenth part of everything. So this is in the New Testament where we learn that it was Abraham that tithed to Melchizedek. Uh, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness and then also king of Salem and that is king of peace. So now in Hebrews, they're just giving you the Hebrew writings for his name. He is without father and without mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek continues a priest forever. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you. And His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. 
For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.